So if we're all sitting comfortably, we shall begin. And yeah, I'd like to invite you, if you'd like to, to close your eyes, but you can keep your eyes open if you want to. <coughs> A bit louder. Yes, so I'd like to invite you, if you'd like, to, uh, to close your eyes, if you'd like to, uh, or you can keep them open, and we're going to be... Uh, voyaging a little into the realm of uh, Padmasambha, the realm into which Padmasambha was born or is born. So let's begin to imagine a beautiful lake, the most beautiful lake perhaps that we can remember ever having seen. Its surface is very smooth and gently rippling. Just the very tops of the water are just being touched by a breeze. It's a very, very large, peaceful lake. Very still, very quiet. There's just the sound of lapping water. Apart from that, it's just silence all around. And we're looking across the lake, noticing how the light of the sky reflects on the surface of the lake. And it's approaching sunset. And we just gaze into the sky. The sky, the colours are ranging from a pale yellow through pink to turquoise. Fine wisps of cloud are gathering and they're collecting the pinky, red, fiery at times colours from the setting sun. The sun is dropping down gently, becoming a fiery rich red as it sinks down to touch the lake, the surface of the lake. And the sky is blushing in a wonderful shade of pinky red now. Very deep reds are beginning to flush across the sky. It's dusk. It's the time of meditation. The time of transformation. From light to dark. From the clear light of day to the more mysterious time in twilight into the unknown times of the night. So we're at that cusp of twilight and the sun just touching the setting sea. It's the time of the setting sun of the deep red Buddha Amitabha, the Buddha of the West, the Buddha of love and compassion. And in that, in that scene, we begin to feel with the radiance of the red colours drifting across towards us. We begin to feel the presence of Amitabha, a deep sense of calm and radiating compassion. <coughs> and a beauty, the rays of the setting sun are scattering ruby beams of light across the lake. It's entrancingly beautiful. And we feel our minds begin to slow down. Our hearts begin to let go that bit more. Let go of what we're holding, what we're bringing. 
just letting go into that peaceful, entrancing lake, looking into the waters of the lake. Reminding us perhaps of something pure within us, deep within us, something of beauty that's within us. So we're really immersing ourselves in the beauty of that scene in the lake, the magical world. And it's feeling quite timeless, quite open. It's an open dimension. And as we do that, something amazing is about to happen. And as we look across at the sun, a brilliant ray of intense red light shoots out from the sun shooting across the lake. Perhaps it's coming from the form of Abhitabha in that red sun. It streaks across the water, touches the water, and at the point where it touches the surface of the lake, a huge crimson red lotus flower begins to emerge from beneath the water, petals unfolding, shaking off drops of water as it emerges as the petals open, it sends rainbows scattering. Each petal seems to be so soft, each one perfectly shaped in an indescribably beautiful deep red, soft red colour. Hard to describe the deep pink red of that lotus of each petal as if they're made of light, each petal is radiant. And, at la- and an exquisite fragrance too is just softly, sweetly making its way across the water from that lotus. And we're just entranced in that timeless realm. The petals reflecting in the turquoise waters of the lake. It's the red lotus of Amitabha, the lotus of compassion. And we're sitting in his realm, a realm of great beauty, a dimension of being where anything is possible. And for a moment we lose a fixed sense of ourselves, and we are that unfolding red lotus. Just for a moment, the blossom we realise is unfolding in the deepest centre of our hearts. It's right within us. It's our own red lotus. We feel something stirring within our hearts, something new being born within us, born of the lotus of compassion, something new coming into the world. And then once more, we're looking at that scene in front of us, at the deep red lotus, which is, can't tell how big it is. It's, we don't know how far away it is. It's just this magical, enormous seeming lotus. And once again, another shaft of ruby red light shoots across the water, falls on the lotus. And a swirling rainbow light begins to hover above the red lotus 
which slowly takes shape as a human form. A radiant figure is sitting on that lotus, sitting in meditation, so pure, so beautiful. The figure seems to be wrapped in a crimson cloak, radiating tranquility and compassion. And the figure, as we watch, becomes more defined. And we see it's a young male figure with long black hair flowing down over his shoulders. His face is shining in a peaceful expression of compassion, a very deep expression. As we watch, the figure continues to change. It's grown into the form of a mature man now with long flowing hair and a small beard. He sits majestic, upright on that lotus, very graceful, very beautiful. He's wearing a red cloak, but he hasn't got the robes of a monk, but instead the garments of a prince, or maybe the garments of a prince of the Dharma. And the expression on his face combines great warmth and deep compassion with a straightforward clarity and fearlessness. His eyes, though warm, they're full of warmth, his eyes, or they're gazing directly into ours. And we can tell that they would not look away, whatever they saw, or whatever they saw of our failings, our joys, our sufferings. We feel that those eyes would see everything about us with kindness. But we know that they, they would never compromise the truth for the sake of an easy life. So we're sitting in the presence of Padmasambhava. We've witnessed the birth of Padmasambhava, whose name literally means the lotus born one, born of the lotus of Amitabha the lotus of compassion. So we can stay with our eyes closed or begin to open them if we like. As we continue to contemplate Padmasambhava, whose essence, his chief quality is compassion. I think we sometimes forget that, that the very essence of Padmasambhava is compassion. He is a compassion active in the world. He is the embodiment, you could say, of Amitabha acting in the world. A compassion which, though deep and utterly gentle, shows itself as fearless and uncompromising, which could seem even tough. It's a compassion that will stop at nothing, that will go beyond convention if necessary, or perhaps it always has to go beyond convention, go beyond our view of what is normal, of what's right, of what's proper, in order to uh, follow the truth to be of benefit to beings. So we've gone in a way straight to the very heart essence of Padmasambhava, witnessing his spiritual birth in the realm of compassion. Uh, but Padmasambhava is a, 
very, as uh, Tara Vandana was saying when she introduced me, uh, or perhaps Arthur Ketu, perhaps they both were saying that, very mysterious figure who seems equally at home in the human, on the human historical plane or the spiritual and archetypal mythic dimension. It's as though he straddles both worlds or he straddles all the worlds almost. He, uh, I was thinking he sort of dances effortlessly across the worlds, across the archetypes, uh, into practical reality. Uh, perhaps he sees no barriers whatsoever. Uh, then I was thinking, actually, well, maybe that's what we all do too, actually. Don't we do that? We, um, we're not completely worldly beings, are we? we? In a way, we manifest those archetypes within us. We, are, we have a mythic dimension within us. Uh, perhaps Padmasambha, although he embodies that to the fullest, uh, he's just an aspect of something that we... That's something to think about, that uh, we, also, um, we also live in those different realms. There's the realm of our ordinary mundane lives, and there's the realm of the heart, there's the realm of the spiritual life. Um, yeah, there's the realm of our aspiration, there's the realm of our dreams, and we, we sort of span all of those worlds. So there seems to be no clear historical uh, record of Padmasambhava's life as such. Uh, there's a, a text which is on the shrine, actually, the two volumes on the shrine there, The Life and Liberation of Padmasambhava, which you could see as being an account of his, of his life. Uh, it, it starts with him being born on a lotus, and then it carries on from there. And sometimes the, there are sort of very, obviously, historical aspects of his life that come through. And then you begin to wonder when the, uh, the demons and the darkenies appear and uh, the, the, the feasts and the um, magical feats are described for, as though they literally happen, which perhaps they do. Yeah, so um, I did try to read it from the beginning, and then I actually had to admit that I, it was a bit too much in a way. I, I started opening it at random after that. <laughs> I expect there are people in the room who have read it right the way through, but I'm not sure. It's, um, it's quite something. Yes, very, very mythic. Very weird and wonderful, I would say. But within it... Despite all that, there are some very um, strong bits of sound spiritual advice that Padmasambha gives to his disciples along the way, his close disciples. So there's this very interesting combination, again, of, of common sense, um, just being advised to look at the nature of impermanence and get on with it, really, uh, get on with our spiritual lives. Yes, yeah, so there isn't a clear historical account, but it seems to be fairly generally accepted that Padmasambha lived in around the 8th century of this era, uh, that he was born on a lotus um, and brought up by a king who found him on the lotus, r roughly speaking, in northern India, in a place called Udiana. Uh, he left home and became a monk for a, a time, left the monastery after a while uh, to meditate in the caves and uh, cremation grounds with the Darkenes. And that's what it seems like he gained his whole range of spiritual experience in the cremation grounds of northern India, which did seem to have actually existed. And uh, you can read the lives of other uh, spiritual teachers who actually did spend years meditating in, in these cremation grounds, which we don't have a lot of access to in our lives, physically speaking. But um, 
I do know people who go and meditate in cemeteries and sit on gravestones sometimes. And presumably they ask the permission of the being under the grave stone to... Before they sit down. <laughs> yeah, so there are many tales of Padmasambra's exploits and the profound effect he had on the people of Tibet, uh, where he's credited as being the principal bringing of the Dharma of Buddhism to Tibet yeah, at that time. Started the oldest Buddhist sect that still uh, continues to this day, the Nyingma sect, and left behind a vast legacy of teachings which are still being practiced today. Um, and then I was reading, I hadn't quite realised, apparently he probably only spent about 18 months in Tibet, Padmasambhava. Uh, so that's pretty amazing that he must have been pretty intense character. He just sort of landed in there, um, you know, conquered the demons and sort of got on with it, uh, taught the Dharma at a very deep level. Uh, and I was just thinking, in a way, it's not surprising then that his memory became more like a legend or a myth because uh, it was such an astounding thing that he did. And then, then at the end of that period of time, he flew off to the land of the um, Rakshasas, the ogres, to go and um, teach the Dharma in that land, apparently. That's at the end of the book. It shows him flying off into the, really the sunset. And he's leaving these, uh, his Tibetan disciples quite distraught and wondering what to do next and so all this has happened in 18 months it's really quite remarkable so he was obviously a very very powerful uh, personality and uh, magnetic personality I imagine somebody uh, to meet who may have been as influential as Shakyamuni in a sense in his time uh, on the you know the extent of the impact he had on people that he met now I can imagine people were unable to think of him as an ordinary person you get that impression somehow. Uh, yeah, people say actually the, you know, the depictions we see of Padmasambha with a little beard and whatever, they're pretty standard, those depictions, and it may be that that is approximately what he did look like, you know, because uh, actually other spiritual teachers you see depicted, they're quite general the way they look. They haven't got any particular distinguishing features, but Padmasambha's depictions are always very sort of particular, aren't they? And, uh, He's always holding the same implements and the same sort of facial features. And there's one particular picture which is meant to be very much like him, which um, I should have brought with me. I've left at home. And I've got one that what people say is meant to be very like, he said was very like him. Yeah. So the other, yeah, the, he did seem to uh, yeah, contain very impressive qualities. And one of those was, it seems to be like really looking ahead to how the Dharma would uh, take root in Tibet over the years. Um, because uh, Buddhism was virtually wiped out in Tibet only a couple of centuries or so after Padmasambha was, had brought the Dharma to Tibet. Uh, and one of the things that Padmasambha did was uh, he, he had a lot of teachings which he wasn't able to give, it seems, at that time. And what he did was he left a legacy of hidden teachings, which are called termas, which again seems very sort of magical and mysterious thing to do, that uh, his chief disciple, uh, his female um, consort, a yogini called Yeshe Sogyal, actually wrote down a lot of his teachings, including the life and liberation of Padmasambha, who is credited to her, and also the Tibetan Book of the Dead, as we call it, another of Padmasambha's teachings. And quite a, you know, a lot of other texts and meditation practices and pujas, uh, and a lot of these, I think all of those, were actually hidden texts. 
And sometimes they were hidden as scrolls, um, written, written in apparently a darkening script, um, and uh, hidden as actual scrolls. And sometimes they were a sort of an inner type of te- terma. And so they were actually, people actually um, discovered them as a vision, or they found themselves just writing something down spontaneously in a particular uh, shrine. But I've read of, you know, one of Fanti's own teachers, Dilgo Kinsey Rinpoche, was called a, well, the, the people who find these termas have got a name are t- called Turtons. And Dilgo Kinsey found quite a few of these termas. And the story of him actually sort of pulling out scrolls from behind shrines um, and then receiving a vision of how to read them because the scripts were very um, encrypted and coded, apparently. So it's all very mysterious. But the fact is, these are very substantial teachings that have come through in that way, somehow. Yeah, very, very amazing, really. Uh, and people, as I say, people are still discovering those to this day. I think sometimes they're discovered more than once. Yeah. Oh, yes, so I thought we'd have a description of Padmasambha. How long do I have for this, by the way? I forgot to ask you that one, but... <laughs> We've gone beyond time and space. Yeah. <laughs> Arthur Kate is going to read a traditional description of Padmasambha. It's from a puja. Uh, yeah. On a lake, a magnificent deep red lotus. Thereon, a white moon mat, luminous and undefiled, and enthroned upon it, embodying all refuges, Guru Padmasambhava, lotus born. He sits cross legged the right hanging slightly down, poised at ease. He has all the signs and marks of a Buddha. He is beautiful and blazes with glory. He wears three robes, the Vadriana blue inner, the Hinayana monk's yellow, and the red flowing cloak of the Mahayana. In his right hand, resting upon the right knee, he clasps a golden vadra, truth itself. In his left hand, he holds the skull cup, shunyata. Therein, the pale red amrita nectar, the great bliss and the vase of immortality. In the crook of his left arm, he holds the flaming three pronged trident, the darkani, which bears three severed heads, an initiation vase and damaru, and vadras and silks. On his head, the red lotus cap adorned with the five jewels avadra and the yogin's vulture's feather on the front a sun disc surmounts a moon crescent his ears are pierced with rings of gold 
His long black hair flows down. He wears all kinds of jewelled ornaments. He is wrathful and smiling for the benefit of all beings. It's said that Padmasambha can uh, manifest in many forms, which I think symbolises that compassionate action uh, does manifest in many forms and also in a way na- naturally does. It almost like it has to manifest in the form that's appropriate to the situation that, that it's in. So that I guess we find in our lives that uh, um, if we're moved by compassion, that that has to be appropriate to... Uh, the situation that we find. Um, yes. So, yes, sometimes compassion can be yeah, very calm, very warm, and a very accepting experience. But other times, as we were saying earlier, it comes with a challenge, perhaps. It comes... Um, there's a compassionate uh, response to us that doesn't condone our unskillfulness or... Uh, the fact that we may be harming ourselves, we may be harming somebody else. And at that time, you know, compassion can come with directness. Um, they can feel even painful at first contact. Uh, but its effect is to, is to wake us up. And I think it, it obviously always has to come with, with, um, with warmth, in a sense, that we would, hope, yeah, that we would um, at some point feel, I guess, hopefully we would feel that. And I, I was thinking actually that awareness is like that too, that it comes to us at times painfully. Uh, that, and that 